<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. And for those of you watching on CBSN, you can see... We're in a restaurant for the first time in more than a year since the middle of March. We are back out with the takeout where the show has always been, or at least its heart has always been. We're in Annapolis, Maryland, the capital of the great state of Maryland, a Galway Bay, which advertises itself, I think quite accurately, as a pub and Irish whiskey bar. We'll stick to the pub side of that declaration. Uh, It's just great to have you with us. I can't tell you how excited I am to be back out in restaurants. Uh, We have been exceedingly cautious about doing this. And we're going to have a conversation about whether or not that caution should be continued to be exercised. But for the next three weeks, we're going to be in restaurants. Dr. Lena Wen will be our special guest in Baltimore next week. And the week after that, we'll be in Richmond, Virginia, talking to the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam. But today, right now, back for the first time in a restaurant in more than a year, our special guest is Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of the great state of Maryland. Governor, it's great to see you. Garrett, it's great to be with you. And uh, I'm glad to be your, your inaugural back to the restaurant. Uh, exactly. So let me ask you right now. Um, what is your confidence level in Maryland and the country? Is the worst of the pandemic behind us, or do we still have some very tough days ahead? I, I, I would say both. I, I believe that the worst of the pandemic is behind us, but I think we still do have some tough days ahead. Uh, you know, and it varies based on where you are and how successful people have been with the vaccines. It's just that simple. Uh, we're what doing, are you most afraid of? I'm concerned about, so in our state, we've done, uh, we're one of the best in the country for vaccinations. We've now done 76% of all the people over 18 and 93% of everybody over 65. As a result, our infection rates and hospitalizations and deaths are nearly non-existent. Uh, but with this, this more virulent, more contagious Delta variant, we're seeing among unvaccinated folks still uh, some real issues that you have to be concerned about. And that's why we're doing everything we can to leave no arm left behind and to get everybody vaccinated. What are you doing that's new on that front? So we've gone after this. Uh, from every angle we could possibly think of. We had 11,400 people involved in our vaccination program uh, at 3,000 different points of distribution. We uh, have an equity task force that I think is, is leading the nation and just doing a great job. But we're, we had mass vaccination sites that have now wound down because we did large you know, portions of the population. Uh, and now it's more uh, going door to door, neighborhood to neighborhood, and trying to work with community leaders and faith-based leaders and others, uh, people that uh, people trust in the community to try to convince uh, the rest of the folks. That- this is a really important question. I want you to hit it hard. How much is misinformation and disinformation actively propagated, undermining your efforts to vaccinate Marylanders? 
Uh, well, it, it, it absolutely is a serious problem all across the country. And I say, I mentioned it, we're, we're doing really well. But among people who have not gotten vaccinated, it's not because it wasn't available. It's because they had reservations. And much of that, a, a great deal of that, comes from misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and it's, it's really sad. I mean, it's actually putting people's lives at risk. Are those on the center right of the political spectrum more or less responsible for that misinformation than others? I would say, uh, you know, there's disinformation all around, but I think the people on the right, I wouldn't say the center right, I would say maybe the hard the, right. The, the, hard right. the Trump right. Uh, the Trump the Trump fact. There's no question. We have difficulties in our more rural communities where, uh, you know, Trump voters Somerset are. County. Somerset County. is your least vaccinated county. Well, Somerset County is unique in that it's uh, it's got one of our largest black populations and it's it's a rural community. So we have... We have some reluctance and hesitancy in both of those communities, and uh, Somerset happens to have a, a combination of, it's a small rural county with a large black population, and we have it on the left and the right, for, quite frankly, um, and they're, they're legitimate concerns that we try to address, but a lot of it is simply complete nonsense that people believe. So, in Maryland, do you anticipate doing anything differently in terms of mask recommendations or mandates in the coming months? Look, we were uh, early on some of, one of the probably the most aggressive state in the country. We took action faster than anybody. I communicated the importance of masking and distancing, and we did really well. And that's why our metrics are so much better than the country and, and probably you know, 45 other states at least. Uh, right now, I, I think that because we've got such a huge percentage of the population vaccinated, we're in great shape, but we still are recommending those who are unvaccinated. If you're in a situation where you can't distance and you're putting yourself in risk in a large crowd, they should still consider it. Unfortunately, consider it. Unfortunately, the ones who uh, are reluctant to get the vaccines are also the ones that are reluctant to wear masks. Same thing. Yeah. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, as I know you know, has said in the fall when schools reopen and children go back to school, and they're all in favor of children going back to school, regardless of we their status, they should wear a mask. Do you agree with that? And will you advise that in Maryland? So right now we're, uh, you know, looking at reopening, getting every single kid back into schools in the fall. And it's critically important because, uh, you know, the the education gaps and our kids have really fallen behind. And uh, so we've got to get them into face, face-to-face, in-person instruction. A lot of our kids, I authorized every school in the state to open since last August. Um, more than half of our school systems did open, uh, but some of our larger jurisdictions uh, decided to do mostly uh, virtual or in some hybrid situations. We've had very little problem over the past year. So uh, the school systems have done a great job. We put about $1.2 billion into our school systems for HVAC improvements, for you ventilation, know, ventilation and, and uh, we, we, we unlimited amounts of PPE. Uh, millions of tests available and our school systems our local school systems have done a great job and i think we can get kids but if they well, ask you and say governor what should we do about masks and kids what's your recommendation i don't think be? that uh, because we got so many people vaccinated because kids have not been a big issue and hadn't been a problem for us for the past year we don't have i don't think we have to require masks for kids understood so in the not too distant future if the president of the united states is to be believed and there's no reason he shouldn't be the Food and Drug Administration will take emergency use authorization off of the vaccines and make them fully approved. That is going to be an interesting and important legal line of demarcation because many people who say, hey, look, yeah. business X you can't require because it's emergency use. When it's fully approved, that legal hook disappears. Will Maryland, under your leadership, require people to be vaccinated to go back to work or to go to certain places in order to incentivize vaccines and to make other people safe? 
No, we're not going to mandate it, but I think it's going to help us a lot to get some. It's the, we just did polling about the folks that have refused to take a vaccine. What was the main issue? And that's the number one issue, that they're not, they're not really fully approved, and so they don't trust the vaccine. So I think it's going to help us get some of the reluctant people. Get over that hump. Get over that hump. Um, and, and, but why and not frankly, mandate it? Frankly, it's taken way too long. Why uh, not mandate it? I, I don't think it's uh, it's something that we should be mandating, but uh, you know, I'd like we're going to continue to get those last twenty some percent uh, and try to finish them up. Not but mandate they're, they're because about, it won't work, or because it's too much of a legal hassle. Both, um, I, you know, I think. And the politics are bad. We've been uh, the politics are also bad, but we're trying to uh, provide incentives, and if companies do have the ability, uh, and, and our, our university systems are requiring people to be vaccinated, a number of companies, our hospital systems are, and we fully support their ability to make those decisions. Uh, but for the state to dictate that to everybody is probably not something that's going to happen. So before we go to our first break, many people may or may not know this, but Maryland has a brilliant history with the Olympics. You have amazing, famous Olympians from Maryland. There are 14 athletes in Tokyo. Are you uncomfortable about these Olympics? Do you think they should go on? Do you think the COVID situation in Tokyo and Japan is so dangerous that they shouldn't go on? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it, and uh, obviously they are too, which is why they, they keep scaling down from no fans except for Japanese uh, fans and now nobody at all. It's a very strange situation. I think they're taking every precaution they can, but obviously we've had some uh, some outbreaks and some uh, people test positive. You know, I, 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 I'm hopeful that the Olympic Committee can is going to continue to try to keep everybody safe, but I think I'm not sure that the Games should have uh, gone on, but given the we're talking about vaccination. Japan has done almost no vaccinations, and it's uh, the Delta variant is uh, is, is really uh, concerning over there. I watch the Olympics. I'm a huge Olympics fan, but I must tell you, Governor, having watched a couple of things already, I'm queasy watching it. I feel this nervousness about it. I haven't uh, watched any yet, but um, I, I know that uh, you know we're uh, we're in the process. We're talking about a trip to Korea. Uh, which you know, Korea is starting to have some issues, and Japan is much worse. Uh, Japan has uh, very little. Uh, I think two percent of the population has been vaccinated. Um, most of our athletes, I believe, have been. So that should be, uh, you know, some people. There's a few breakthroughs that somebody that's been vaccinated actually gets the virus, but they're not being hospitalized. Like in, since June 1st in our state, 100 percent of our deaths and 95 percent of our hospitalizations are unvaccinated people. So, Major Garrett. Larry Hogan, take out segment two in just a second. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Back out on the road in a restaurant in person for the first time in much more than a year. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. It's fantastic to be in Annapolis, the capital of Maryland, with the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Galway Bay is our hosting restaurant. We'll be having lunch here in just a moment. Hannah, our spectacular waitress, will be coming up in just a moment to take our orders. So, Governor, you said those statistics. I wanted to have you drive them home because Maryland uh, is among the leaders in this country in vaccination rates, but 
those who are unvaccinated account for what percentage of your hospitalizations and deaths? So one since June first, one hundred percent of our deaths. One hundred percent. One hundred percent of our deaths and ninety-five percent of our hospitalizations are unvaccinated people. Right. That, if that doesn't drive it home for you, that you know, if you if you get vaccinated, you're not going to be in the hospital and you're not going to die. Right. <laughs> And I have read, Governor, in other states which have much lower vaccination rates, these pitiful stories of people who are now telling their nurses or their family members, I thought one thing, now this brother, this son, this wife, spouse is dying or has died. I wish I had done something different. Well, it's heartbreaking um, because this is a completely uh, unavoidable situation that we're in. And you talked earlier about the misinformation and disinformation. It breaks my heart that people, uh, we can't break through and we can't convince some of these folks because it's the simplest thing uh, to do uh, to keep you and your family and your loved ones safe. Is it, in its own way, Governor, a metaphor for where our politics have descended? That's a very good point. I mean, look, uh, we're... We're so, uh, I talk a lot about the toxic politics today in America, and we're so divided on the right and the left, and there's so much anger and frustration and disinformation. Uh, this is a perfect example of it when people's lives are at stake, when we've lost 600,000 Americans, and, uh, and still we're arguing about how to keep the rest of them safe. And the identity that we attach with one person, either this person is my champion, and therefore that person is my enemy, and whatever comes out of that enemy's mouth, yeah. I discount up front. Well, we don't even get to the layering of is it true or not true or anything else. Well, it's one of the most frustrating things to me, and I actually wrote a book that touches on some of these topics because I, I really think we're at a point in this country uh, where we're, there's so much anger and uh, divisiveness, I call it the toxic politics, uh, that the people are just shouting at each other and, and listening to their own echo chambers. We're not really... Uh, paying attention to the facts or listening to the other side and trying to figure out a way to find that middle ground where we can all get, to get, get together and, and get things done. Former President Trump is a symptom of that or the cause? Well, I, I, I don't think you can blame all of it on him. I, I talked about this in my inauguration, uh, my inaugural speech in 2015 in January about the divided politics in the country. So it was, it was already happening. It's been happening, getting worse, I think, for decades. But there's no question in my mind that uh, the president has exacerbated the problem. He and, is the uh, testosterone behind yeah, that toxic th- politics. Th- threw some gasoline on the fire. Mm-hmm. And is that sustainable for a national party? No, it's not, which is why I, uh, you know, I've been... Sp- speaking out from the beginning and um, uh, standing up. And, and I, I, look, I really believe in uh, a competitive a two-party system. I think it's you know, great for our uh, democratic republic. And I'm concerned that uh, you know, my party uh, is no longer uh, a, a big tent Reagan-esque party where we're shrinking and shrinking the base. We're just talking to the hardcore base and we're not reaching, as I've done here in Maryland, bluest state in the country, uh, I'm a Republican, the second one to be reelected in 244 years. Uh, I did it by reaching out and, and uh, still still appealing to the base of Republican voters, but getting independents and discerning Democrats, suburban women, and minorities to cross over and vote for me. And that's what the party needs to do nationally. Or we're not going to we're not going to be a major party. We're not going to we're not going to win uh, national elections. I mentioned your name just a moment ago. Hannah is here. Hannah, it's great to see you. Oh, Please approach Hannah. the table. Okay, great. Yeah. Governor, what would you like for well. lunch? I'm going to try fish and chips. Fish and chips. It's a classic. Good choice. <laughs> Had I will have the Reuben. A Reuben. I noticed that I have fries on the side. I would like yes. not to have fries on the side. I would okay. like another potato item from the menu: the Wexford potato cakes. Okay. Wow, what a 
What a bold choice. <laughs> Reuben and potatoes. I'm in an Irish pub, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm going full Irish. So, Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And whenever that food is ready, you just throw it right in front of us. We'll know what to do with it. So, let's go back to January 6th. Yeah. There is an effort by the former president to say, you know, they were just ushered in. It was kind of peaceful. It wasn't as bad as it looked. I want your full-throated description of what you saw and what you believe it represents. Well, it's just absolutely false. It's it's complete nonsense. I mean, this was an attack on our on the, 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 the very seat of power of our democracy. I've described it as an attack by the executive branch on the legislative branch. Well, I'm not sure I, I would describe it exactly that way, but I, I have said repeatedly that uh, the president was responsible for inciting that crowd, and it was the, it was because of his uh, rhetoric and the other folks that the, this uh, crowd got out of hand and, and, and went to the Capitol. Look, I was I was in my office here in Annapolis on a on a Zoom with the Japanese ambassador when I got um, my chief of staff interrupted and said they're attacking the Capitol. I excused myself. I then got frantic phone calls from Steny Hoyer, who, uh, uh, who was with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, begging us to send the Maryland National Guard and the Maryland State Police, which we did. We were the first ones to arrive. Uh, we, uh, it, it was an assault on, on democracy, and, it, and right, it's totally unacceptable. To, to that point, Governor, you are a state governor protecting the national capital from fellow Americans. It's, it, it's, uh, did you ever believe— that day would ever come. I, I never could have imagined in my uh, wildest dreams that we could get to that point. Uh, or your wildest nightmares. My wildest nightmares. Uh, you know, I came out immediately. It, look, we, we were trying to send the National Guard because the D.C. is in a state. They don't have a governor. And we had to get the approval of the Department of Defense, which took two hours. Mm-hmm. But uh, our guys were staged at the border. We sent in 250 riot train Maryland State Police that were the first ones after the Metropolitan Police to arrive to, to back up the Capitol Police. And this effort within the Republican Party on the tr- side of it to sanitize January 6th, how does that land with you? I, we Look, we have to get to the bottom of exactly what happened there. And there's no way whitewashing. Uh, we need to get to the, all the facts and find out exactly uh, what happened. Uh, but there's no way to just overlook this and say it didn't happen. The nonsense about these were just uh, peaceful uh, tourists, tourists uh, is completely absurd. And talk about major disinformation and lies. That's exactly what that is. So Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, has pulled the Republicans he appointed to this com- committee to investigate it. Your thoughts on that? Well, I'm concerned about it. First of all, I, I do believe that we should we need a, a committee uh, investigation. Bipartisan one. They were working on I, I, that. I think we need a got, real— Got through the House, yeah. so, locked in the Senate by Republicans. I know. I'm, I, I, I'm frustrated because, uh, on the one hand, we do need to get to the bottom of it. We do have to have a fair and objective and bipartisan hearing. And now it's it's like typical Washington. It's devolved into both both parties retreating to their corners. And, you know, and now it's not—there's not a bipartisan effort. And I'm concerned about— uh, you know, I don't want either side. I don't want the Republicans whitewashing what happened. I don't want the Democrats just trying to make political hay. I want to really have a real investigation and find out what happened. So the underlying cause of that riot at the United States Capitol was weeks upon weeks of unsubstantiated lies about the election of 2020. Who's to blame for that? Well, Donald Trump is to blame. Uh, he's the one that's uh, created the lies. Uh, and it's sad that uh, such a large number of uh, Republican-based what voters actually about? believe them. Why do they believe that? Uh, you know, it's uh, again, it gets back to uh, the the I think social media and echo chambers and uh, disinformation campaigns. That some of which are you know being uh, inflamed by outsiders even. Uh, that, that that people are believing the stuff that they see, and they're getting their information from 
uh, sources that aren't credible. Does it pose a persistent danger to democracy itself? I, I think it does. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very concerned about the future of the Republican Party, particularly in the future of the country. It is bad for democracy, and we've got to uh, we've got to find a way. I don't know when we're going to break the fever and get out of this, uh, but I'm going to do everything I can to try to be a part of making that happen. So let's merge these two thoughts together. Should President, former President Trump be more aggressively promoting vaccines, as some of his Republican colleagues have begun to do this week, and... Should he? I know the answer to this. Get off the big lie. Well, of course, uh, to both of them. Uh, look, I was the chairman of the National Governors Association through most of COVID, and I led 60-some calls with all 50 governors and uh, either the president and or vice president and the whole coronavirus team. Uh, I was pushing back uh, when I didn't think they were doing enough on testing, when they, when, when they weren't getting us any of the things that we needed. The states were on the front lines battling this almost alone in some ways. Uh, I'll give them credit because they did a really good job with Operation Warp Speed and getting the vaccines and getting them out there. But then the president's misinformation and refusal to talk about wearing masks when it was so critically important, refusal to talk about the vaccine and how important that was, even though he was responsible for getting it done and he got vaccinated, but then uh, added to this, uh, this uh, the folks that support him and the, part of his base that just refuses to do it. That's the voice of Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of the great state of Maryland. We are in Annapolis, Maryland at Galway Bay. Lunch is en route. Hannah will be bringing it to us forthwith. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. The sounds you hear around us are the happy sounds of a restaurant, and we are delighted to be back in restaurants again. I'm Major Garrett. Galway Bay is our hosting restaurant here in Annapolis, Maryland, and just a couple of blocks away is the office of our guest, the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Governor, one real quick thing on COVID. Are you going to be ramping up or do you need in Maryland to ramp up testing? Because testing has become less prevalent, but with the Delta and then now, and you'll start reading and hearing more about it, ladies and gentlemen, the Lambda variant. Look, we're going to go through the Greek alphabet on these variants. That's what viruses do. Do you need to increase testing capacity in Maryland to have more awareness of where your hotspots are and what your breakthrough cases are. Well, so again, we, we actually have led the nation on testing as well, and I think we're, we've done uh, over, uh, I think, 12 million tests in Maryland. We're at 7.4 million vaccines. People are, are uh, because there's so many people vaccinated, less people are getting tested, but it still is a, a huge problem. So we're, we're con- trying to continue to ramp up our testing. You know, I put together a 10-state uh, bipartisan compact to get testing when the federal government wasn't, uh, wasn't doing their job. We, I was the, one of the first ones to get tests from uh, South Korea when they had a good testing program and they didn't have any here in America. So we're, we're, we're continuing to push. Testing is still important. Just yesterday, we made a big announcement where we're uh, putting a lot of money into our school system to upgrade and make sure that they're ready to be testing constantly. Rapid tests. So uh, all this surveillance is going to need to be a part of the equation in yeah, the fall when, we, so when the weather starts getting colder and we're back indoors more. But no question. We're also doing more sequencing than anybody in the country, about twice the national average. And that's where, what that is. where you take the, the test and you uh, go through a more detailed test to find out what variants we're dealing with. Uh, so I think nationally there's about 5% of the tests are being uh, sequenced, and, and we're doing, I think, about three times that much. But still, it's to find out. It, what is, are we at Delta variant? Is Lambda variant? How? What's prevalent out there? Right. All right. So 
as a governor and as someone who led the Governor's Association, I want to talk to you about some of your Republican colleagues, because in states named Georgia and Texas, but not just to them, there have been efforts successfully uh, or in Texas held in abeyance to rewrite state laws on election procedures. So had you been the governor in Maryland and the Maryland legislature, which wouldn't have because it's run by Democrats, given you the Georgia new law on voting, would you have signed that? Or would you sign the Texas law? Do those kinds of laws deal with a real problem or an imaginary problem? Well, that's a great question. I, first of all, we're, we're, I think, again, we were doing really well in Maryland, and we had all of the above voting. We had about one-third of the people voted with early voting, one-third of them voted by mail, and one-third of them came in person on election day to vote. And we had all of our results by 8 o'clock that night, and no problems or issues. Um, you know, we do have a patchwork of election laws all across the country. That's the way it's always been. Uh, I, you know, I would, I haven't really studied the Georgia or Texas laws, the exact wording, but I know certainly the argument that's going on. On the, on the right, I think there's a real concern uh, that there are some problems with uh, inaccurate voting and things that were irregular and that we have need to correct. And on the, on the left, it's, it's that Republicans are just trying to stop people from voting. And I'm not sure... Uh, that it's, it's cut and dry, as we see in most of the media. I, I, I think that we should make sure that we take every, every step we possibly can to ensure that everyone has the ability and access to vote, but we also to make sure that no one is cheating and that mm-hmm. we're making sure that every vote is counted fairly and accurately, and that's, that's what we've done in our state. And I think some of that's lost in this current debate. There is nothing in your opinion or experience that is fraudulent on its face about mail-in voting. No, we've been doing it here in Maryland for 20 years. and uh, Or we, early voting. And early voting. It's, been, it's really uh, hasn't been an advantage to one party or the other. And it's, uh, a lot of people have found uh, you know, it's a great way to, to... And in 2016, lots of Republicans voted by mail and Donald Trump won. Well, traditionally, actually, for 20 years, we've had more Republicans voting by mail. They do absentee ballots because they're, if they're going to be out of town, they always take care of it. So it, it, Donald Trump kept talking about how they were going to use this to cheat. So this brings Republicans us back took advantage of it. to our conversation about democracy and its mm-hmm. stability. It seems to me, Governor, that in terms of these conversations, what is really driving it is my side lost, therefore it's fraudulent. That can't exist as a normative conversation in a functioning democracy, can it? Well, I, you know, I think... Uh, yeah. Yes. There you go. Yeah, great. We can have... The food, Thank you. That uh, looks great. Doesn't look very uh, dietetic, but it looks... Looks delicious. very healthy to me, Governor. I think that looks incredibly <laughs> healthy. I was doing pretty well on a diet, but I figured we're, we're here in the pub. we got to eat some. Exactly. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, look, we, uh, disinformation and, and outright lies and um, undermining people's confidence that we have a, an election system that's fair and accurate and uh, questioning the results unfairly, that, no question that's undermining democracy. Uh, but, but if but, your orientation is it's a valid election when my side wins and it's invalid when my side loses, well, I would say you know, vote, vote. the race is democracy. It, 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 it certainly uh, is the it's the kind of thing that we see in other places around the world where America has come in and tried to stand up to make sure we had free and fair elections and that we didn't have these kinds of issues. So it's it's a huge concern. And this goes back to one of your earlier observations, and I want to see if you want to marry them together. You're worried about the future of the Republican Party. Well, if your party is one of grievance and can accept a world in which Republicans do now. There is a member of the House of Representatives in good standing who won her election in Iowa by seven votes. But many in that same party believe that it is invalid for a president to sit in the Oval Office who won by seven million votes. How can those two worlds exist together? 
Well, I'm not sure they they can, they can or they should. Uh, you know, I, I but that uh, seems existential I th- for the Republican Party. I, I think the Republican Party is at a real turning point. Uh, a, week, a couple of weeks after the election, I spoke at the Reagan Institute and I gave a speech about you know uh, time for choosing. Uh, it, was a, it was a great Reagan uh, speech and quote. And, and I said, we have to decide if we're going to be a party, uh, return to uh, to the party of Reagan and Lincoln and, uh, and return to the you know, core values of the Republican Party. Are we going to be a bigger tent that can appeal to more people and win elections? Or are we going to go down the rabbit hole of crazy conspiracy theories? and Bitterness, and, grievance, and conspiracy. Well, and, and, and just having Trump, uh, this cult of personality, as opposed to... and. Uh, leaders who are afraid to actually come out and say what they really think because they're, they, they, feel, they fear uh, retribution. Okay, enough uh, T-ball. <laughs> are you going to run against Trump in 2024? Well, I don't, first of all, I don't think Trump's going to run in 2024. Why? And, and uh, I, I don't think his, uh, his ego is going uh, to let him go out and lose another election. Uh, I also I think he's going to continue to have problems. I think he reached his apex. If you, if you look at polling, you know, he was very popular among the Republican base, uh, but he's dropped almost 30 points since November uh, in, in, with Republican primary voters. I think he's going to continue to wreak havoc and be a, some, uh, you know, a problem for us as he attacks you know, electable Republicans who are incumbents, <clears throat> goes after them in primaries with people uh, who may be QAnon folks or that, that can't possibly win a, a general election in a, in a contested in a swing, state. In a swing district yeah. or a swing state. We, 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 look, we're, I, I, uh, uh, I'm a Republican who got reelected in the bluest state uh, in the middle of Trump. Uh, Trump lost my state by 30 points twice. I won by 15 in, in between those two elections. So I, I think I have something to say about how do we go about attracting the voters we need to to be able to be a party that can compete. I think the latest, uh, I saw some poll recently that only 39% of people today self-identify as Republicans. Well, that's, it's simple math. Uh, you know, Haley Barber once said successful politics is about uh, addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. If you want to get to 50% plus one, you have to convince enough people uh, that your ideas are the, are the right ones. So if Trump doesn't run, are you running in 2024? I've really never expressed any uh, desire to run for president. There are certainly a lot of Not people. yet. Well, I still have 18 months to be governor of Maryland, and I, 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 mean, I think I've done a pretty good job here. People seem to be happy with what we're doing. I'm going to run through the tape, uh, give every single day everything I've got, and be the best governor I can. And We'll see what happens in the midterms and see what opportunities present themselves. But uh, it's far too early. Speaking of other opportunities that are already presenting themselves, and you've, gotten, you've received many phone calls about this as well, what about running against Chris Van Hollen in 2022, the incumbent Democratic senator of the great state of Maryland, who I know you know well? You know, it's interesting. I've said every time I've ever been asked that question, which is like 100 times, I've said I have no interest whatsoever in running for the United States Senate. Uh, you know, I'm just not. Look, I, being governor of Maryland, I, I'm a small, I have a lifetime business owner who you know likes to make decisions and get things done. And being a governor, uh, you know, I, I have a $50 billion budget and 90,000 employees. I make decisions every day. Being one guy in Washington arguing with you know, 99 other people uh, and never getting anything done just doesn't have that much appeal to me. Uh, but they keep bringing it up because the Washington Post did a poll a while back that said I would beat a bad Holland by 12 points and I have a 70-something percent approval rating. And certainly, 
you know, folks in Washington would like, we haven't, we haven't picked up a seat here since the 80s. So. 1980 <laughs> was the last time. Yeah. The Republican won yeah. it. So the, the answer is still, uh, don't really want to be a senator. The unhappiest <laughs> uh, senators I've ever met, Governor Hogan or former That's governors. True. I've so. heard from a lot of them on both sides. <laughs> I'm Andrew Garrett. We're at Galway Bay in Annapolis. Larry Hogan is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment four in just one moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Man, am I happy to say this. Boy, is lunch good. (laughs) Galway Bay is our hosting restaurant here in Annapolis, Maryland. Our special guest, Larry Hogan, Republican governor, state of Maryland. Uh, Governor, are you a Lynn Cheney Republican or is Lynn Cheney a Larry Hogan Republican? Look, I have a great deal. That's a a great question, but I I have a great deal of uh, respect and admiration for Lynn Cheney. I think she showed a lot of courage when uh, there there really were not too many examples of profiles of courage. It sort of reminded me, you know, my dad was the... Are you interested in raising money to help her stay in the House of Representatives? I I will try to help her in every way I possibly can. Uh, She's the kind of Republican that uh, that we need, and um, whatever I can do to help her. You know, I, I, I helped a lot of Republicans in the last race. I'm the chairman of No Labels. Uh, Joe Lieberman is my co-chair. But we, we have a bunch of Republican and Democratic House members, the Problem Solvers Caucus. I went out and helped uh, Susan Collins in Maine and did commercials. And I've, I've helped all these guys who are willing to work together in a bipartisan way. We, we need people like Liz Cheney and, and the Republican Party. And Former it's crazy President Trump has doing. meddled, and that's putting it mildly in that primary. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's like the most important primary on the calendar this year for Republicans? I think we're going to have a lot of them. Uh, you know, I'm concerned about the fact that uh, certainly Liz Cheney is important. I'll try to help her in any way I can. I don't know if it's the most important one because we've got – He's, he's, he's meddling in a number of my colleagues, uh, my Republican governor colleagues. You know, he's Mike DeWine, who's doing a great job in Ohio. I'm not sure what his sin was, but other than he, he was uh, uh, following the science on COVID, and uh, he's coming after him. And, 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 and Brian Kemp in Georgia, whatever you think of his politics on, uh, the, on, the, on the voting bill, look, this guy was a strong Trump supporter who would not assert, a, you know, he wouldn't lie about the results of the election. And Trump's coming after him. Uh, with and Doug Ducey in Arizona, and Doug Ducey, another one who wouldn't Ducey's lie about the election. Ducey's a good friend. Ducey was a strong supporter of the president's, and he's like you know, attacking him left and right. The Arizona Republican Party trying to censure these folks—it's crazy. And conducting phony audits. Yeah, the, the audit is—I mean, like Ducey flat out said, we we counted these votes multiple times. He, he didn't win. Right. Uh, so, how is Joe Biden doing? Is Joe Biden a net success or a net failure as president of the United States? I really think it's too early to judge. I wouldn't certainly call him a, a, a huge success or, or a, a total failure. I think it's only been much seven months or so mm-hmm. since he's been in office. Um, you know, I, I've had the opportunity. I had the opportunity to sit down with him in the Oval Office for about an hour and a half or talk. I was I was involved in trying to very involved in this whole infrastructure deal and uh, bringing people together. I did a year long infrastructure summit uh, with the Governors Association, and then I convened all of these. Democratic and Republican governors, senators, congressmen, to come up with the this, this structure of this compromise deal. So I was talking with him. 
I, I think he really does. He, he says fairly sincerely he wants to work with us, wants to work across the aisle. I think some of his uh, staff wants to go in a more uh, a left-leaning direction. Joe Biden, I think, was elected, nominated, because he was not the most far-left Democrat. Uh, he wasn't Elizabeth Warren. He wasn't Bernie Sanders. But I think those folks maybe are having too much influence on him, which is not going to be good for him or the country. So you're looking at this infrastructure. It seems to be teetering on the edge of oblivion. It's either <laughs> going to happen or not, and we're going to find out in the next three or four days. What's your sense about that? And what do you want Republicans to do? Because getting back again to former President Trump, he said it's a trap. Block it. Get away from it. Well, he's just dead wrong. Uh, so yeah, I, I mentioned I, I did summits uh, all around the country and around the world on infrastructure. We, we made re- a set of recommendations. I got all 50 governors to agree to. We submitted it to both presidents, to the secretaries of transportation. I testified for the Senate on it. And then I, and then I brought in, with my other hat, no labels, brought in the Problem Solvers Caucus, Joe Manchin, uh, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney. I convened uh, you know, Cassidy. Uh, well, all these guys, we brought in the Annapolis for two days and hammered out this, what I think is a great compromise. It's a, it includes a lot of things that the Republicans didn't want, doubled them from $600 million to about $1.2 trillion. It got rid of all the stuff that, while it's certainly things that we can debate and argue, that were superfluous that didn't have anything to do with infrastructure, the family infrastructure stuff. They can handle that separately. We found agreement. We had we had, we had uh, 58 uh, members of the problem solvers, half Democrat, half Republican. We got 20 some se- 22 senators. I think it's very important for the country that we find a way to work together. I think this is one both Republicans and Democrats have talked about for decades and never done anything about. We're so close to a deal that the president has agreed to. If the president really wants to make it happen, he should just tell Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to get it done. Get it done, meaning... Let them do their work, put it on the floor, and even if the progressives don't like it, make them eat it. Exactly. Well, the progressives can come back and fight for all the things that they care about later, but they shouldn't try to jam it into an infrastructure bill that has bipartisan support. So uh, before I let you go, Governor, uh, you are not a moderate Republican. You've cut taxes here. You have uh, vetoed a police reform bill that wanted to limit no-knock warrants that... Uh, required body cams and you have been on the I would say like you you, you often invoke Reagan Um, you're not a moderate you're not like a low-level Republican you're just not a Trump Republican right (laughs) I'm a lifelong uh, right of center Republican I would say a common-sense conservative I was a, a chairman of youth for Reagan so I'm a true solid Republican but I never thought that uh, the direction that President Trump was taking. One of the things I loved about Reagan was his hopeful, positive vision for the future, uh, that he really did. Uh, he was a great communicator. Trump is the opposite of that. You know, he, Instead of bringing people together, he was tearing people apart. And, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a conservative, uh, and, uh, I, but I'm in the bluest, most liberal state in the country, and, and people keep reelecting me because I, I also believe very strongly in bipartisan common sense solutions and working across the aisle to get things done. I, I stand up and fight for the things that I think are important, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm also willing to uh, reach compromise, which is which is actually what Reagan was really good at. So uh, across the river uh, in Virginia, several counties, Loudoun County chief among them in Virginia, are being torn apart by a debate at the local level over critical race theory. School boards are being divided about this. Parents are outraged. It has become a thematic part of Republican Party opposition to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. 
What do you think about critical race theory? What is it happening or isn't happening in Maryland? Are you in favor of it? Are you opposed to it? What? Look, I think we have to have, uh, you know, fair and balanced education that looks at uh, our real history and covers everything. We, we have had no problems whatsoever with critical race theory in Maryland. We don't have we, we don't have that debate going on. You know, these are the curriculum. We have I think we have some of the best curriculum in the country that has, has always been kind of fair and balanced. That uh, there are no no issues or problems with any of our school boards who have the the the, the, the voters' authority to, to make those kinds of decisions. I understand it's a big debate going on in Loudoun County. I haven't been, you know, uh, that involved in it, but I think it's... Do you think there's anything inherently dangerous or, and this is a term that has been applied to it, racist about critical race theory? I, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, again, I will go back to what we were talking about earlier on the voting rights. I think you're, there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides of the issue. I think there are some legitimate concerns about the in some cases, rewriting history and 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 uh, pushing a certain uh, narrative, and and then I think there's other folks on the other side who who don't want don't want to go back and 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 uh, teach what would really happen. Don't want to touch those painful truths. Right. Governor Larry Hogan, Republican, a great state of Maryland. Galway Bay has been our host restaurant. We appreciate them very much. I'm still working through my lunch. For those on our radio audience, we have to say farewell. But for those on CBSN and the podcast platform, stay tuned for the takeout outtake. Especially Alan Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. You know, this is your Takeout Outtake Especial, and I need to compliment the person who thought about having the show in a restaurant. Who was that genius? Oh, it was me. (laughs) I'm so happy to be back in a restaurant and with this show, um, because every conversation, you know this, ladies and gentlemen, that's why you're here, is improved by having that conversation over a meal. And we have not been able to do that for the very longest time. We're in Annapolis, Maryland. Galway Bay is our host restaurant. It's fantastic. Lunch with Governor Larry Hogan. Um, so, how is your health? How are you feeling? And tell my audience why they should be curious about that. Well, uh, thank you for asking. My health is uh, great. Uh, never felt better. I'm 100% uh, cancer-free and have been now for six years. So it's uh, Diagnosed in 2014 with what? It was 2015. I had just been governor for uh, five months, and I was diagnosed with very aggressive and advanced uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which had spread all over my body. I was, uh, it was, came as a complete shock. I went through about uh, five months of 24-hour day chemotherapy, kept working through it all, and then another year of maintenance chemo, and now I'm completely clear and feeling stronger than ever. I, just, I, I used to have a beautiful head of white hair, and now I've lost that, but that's the only uh, remnant of my uh, battle. Some in the audience know what you're talking about. Many do not. Uh, briefly, what's chemo like? You know, it was, uh, it was I, I had a whole new appreciation for people that have to go through that. And uh, it's not just the cancer patient, but their families, their support system. But it was a, for me, it was really a great experience. Uh, it was tough to go through. It really was. But I got to meet so many incredible people uh, who were going through similar or tougher battles. And I have a whole new appreciation. I've, I've, I've been very involved now in supporting cancer charities and reaching out to pe- people who are going through that, working with pediatric oncology boards. And 
Uh, but it, it's it's not a fun thing. It's a, a kind of a, a archaic. You know, they try to they try to kill the cancer while keeping you alive, and <laughs> it's poison in your body. No doubt. So, uh, Governor, we have three threshold questions we ask all of our guests, and we have done this since the show started, just before inauguration day, twenty seventeen. So we have a long list of answers to this. So take these questions in whichever order you prefer. Uh, most influential book in your life. Your all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're driving through the beautiful state of Maryland or you're on a long flight and you're going to really enjoy some music, I mean really enjoy it, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Well, I'm most likely to listen to uh, today's country. It's kind of, I'm a late bloomer in this. I used to be a, you know, 70s, 80s rock and roll guy, but I switched over to uh, country music and it's on in my truck all day long. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much what I would listen to on a drive. Um, So some of the artists you like most in the modern country? uh, Chris Stapleton is a guy that I'm a big fan of. Uh, You know, uh, Zach Brown band. Um, uh, Tim McGraw, I have a great story. Uh, Tim McGraw has a song called Live Like You Were Dying. It talks about making the most out of every day. And it became my theme song uh, when I had cancer. And he did a benefit for a children's hospital at the University of Maryland. I met him backstage and uh, thanked him for inspiring me with his song, and uh, he dedicated the song to me at this concert, and then gave me a guitar that's signed uh, to the Gov, "Live Like You're Dying," Tim McGraw. So, got got to put him in there as well. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's right up there, as they say. So, favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? Uh, a favorite movie, I think, is you know I have a lot of them, but uh, for some some I really like a few good men, which was uh, just uh, Jack Nicholson was just terrific in that, along with Tom Cruise and Demi Moore it was a. And I've watched it a bunch of times. So uh, about that movie, uh, it is said that there are those who take the Jack Nicholson speech near the end and don't see it for what it is, see it as this kind of low-level madman exaggerating his importance, but as actually a rallying cry to look at life. How do you regard that speech? I just thought it was an incredible uh, acting performance, and Jack Nicholson <laughs> nailed it. And I understand he just, I, 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 the rumor is that he just walked in, like, almost one take on that. He came in, walked in the back of the room, and nailed that speech, and it was it was just a riveting, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> you know, some of the stuff he was saying with rallying troops, some of it was the guy's completely crazy. And, you need me on that wall. <laughs> yes. You want me on that wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And influential book. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was, ju- you know, I, I was just asked this. I was at the Reagan Institute talking about this. What's your favorite uh, book about Reagan? And I, the Reagan Diaries, I think, is one that I just because it's in his own own words is mm-hmm. uh, one. I, I mean, there's a million. It's hard to narrow it down to one. But that's you know, that's I'm going to there there later today uh, actually. And so I, I'd say Reagan Diaries. Mm-hmm. And do you think Ronald Reagan? would recognize the Republican Party as it currently exists? I don't think he would. I was just asked that in an event last week. And you know, would, would Reagan be able to get uh, elected or nominated in this environment? And would he be called a rhino? You know, it's... Uh, Republican in name only. It's, uh, look, I think he was, uh, he was uh, the best, uh, one of the greatest presidents we had. Certainly uh, uh, it had the biggest landslide victories for the Republican Party. I think changed the country and, uh, and, and the world. And, uh, you know, but it's hard to tell what, what, what we see in the Republican Party today. And you don't think, if I hear you correctly, he would be nominated? Well, I'd certainly, uh, again, be out there as a foot soldier in the Reagan But that's Revolution not the same thing. To elect him. That's uh, not the same thing. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, I think politics, uh, six months is an eternity. We still have three and a half years to figure out what's going to happen uh, in the next election. 
And uh, I think things are going to look a lot different down the road than they do now. And I'm hopeful that we can turn, return to a more Reagan-esque Big Ten party. Before I let you go, do you think one of the problems that former President Trump will confront that will prevent him from being an active participant in 2023 or 2024 is he will be indicted? I think it's certainly a possibility. I, you know, I'm not a lawyer and haven't seen all the uh, stuff going on uh, in New York, but uh, it's uh, it's certainly a possibility. And I, I look at if nothing else, he's not going to be in as strong of a position as he is now. It's, it's, his uh, his influence, I, I believe, will continue to gradually diminish, and something like that might accelerate it. Last thing, uh, I was interviewing someone I know you know well, Chris Christie, on C-SPAN when his latest book came out. And Chris Christie said something to me I want to run by you. He said, Donald Trump is least loyal to the people who are most loyal to him. Well, I think that uh, Chris Christie knows him a lot better than I do. Uh, Chris and I are good friends. Uh, we had we parted ways when he uh, came out and endorsed the president, got very involved. And I had been very supportive of Christie, who helped me get elected. Uh, but we have always had strong disopinion, disagreements about uh, Trump. Uh, but he knows him a lot better than I do. And he was a guy who was very loyal to the president and the president was very loyal to him. So he knows from firsthand experience. I think if you look at all the people that uh, it were in the, so many people that went in and out of the White House and the cabinet that he just uh, who were loyal to him and then, then they got trashed by the president. The, the biggest example of that, I believe, is uh, Mike Pence, who I, uh, I think uh, showed did the right thing and followed the Constitution, had the guts to do what was right on January 6th. And and uh, President Trump uh didn't even uh, didn't even reach out when they were talking about hanging Mike Pence, and he didn't. Instead of calling off the dogs with those people that were out there doing that, he he kept egging them on. That is the voice of Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan. Governor, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Major. It was really great. Everyone, we'll see you next week at another restaurant. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for the takeout next week. We'll see you. Thanks. The takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? 
Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.